and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a social media sweetheart and superstar chef on to talk about his passion for handmade pasta, his Michelin star background, and the friendship facial hair tattoo he has with another Food Network favorite. He is a Bay Area chef, entrepreneur, content creator, Food Network hotlister, and he's competing on the new season of Tournament of Champions. It's Joe Sasto. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Uh, We just had Justin Sutherland on the pod, and I saw on Instagram that you two have each other's facial hair tattooed on each other's bodies. So please explain. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is that is one way to put it. I prefer to think of it as like best friend tattoos. Okay. Friendship tattoos. Aw, that's nice. A long story short, I was visiting him and we went to his tattoo shop and he gets all of his tattoos from same wonderful tattoo artist. And we're hanging out there and he had surprised me and was like, oh, wouldn't it be really cool if we had matching friendship tattoos? And she had already drawn up (laughs) the beard and the mustache. And he was like, let's do it. I was like, oh, my God, this is insane. It's not my first tattoo. So I was already used to it and it wouldn't have been like the first time getting ink. And I was like, oh, okay, like maybe. I was like, first, I got to check with with Bella, my partner. I was like, I can't just like show up back home with a new (laughs) tattoo. And so I texted her and was just like, hey, I'm with Justin. We just got to his tattoo shop, like hanging out. And then she responds immediately, like a minute later, all caps. Wouldn't it be awesome if you guys matching friendship tattoos? <laughs> and so was like, she in on it? Each other. No, had no idea. Wow. That was just her response. I mean, how awesome of a partner is that? That right? is pretty incredible. She's just like instantly knew. She's like, this is what you guys have to do. And so we did it. It was a very significant bonding moment for us, and uh, it was a lot of fun. So, yes, I have now his, his an outline of his big beard on me, and he has the outline of the mustache on him. Excited to see what else yeah. uh, the two of us have in store. We're forever friends. We are looking forward to, to seeing what's in store as well. But meanwhile, you are, I, I would say, the social media king of carbohydrates. Your TikToks have broken 40 million views, your Instagram, an amazing grid of color and texture. What inspired you to take to social media to showcase your personality and your pasta making? First of all, the king of carbohydrates is a huge compliment. I love (laughs) that title because it's not just pasta. It's like bread and Mm -hmm. anything, anything carbs I'm into, cookies, donuts, like that is me. Social media was something that became very new right as I was getting into the, let's call it the television culinary scene. It was just kind of starting its birth and something that had not necessarily been at the forefront, food media. And so I had been posting things and posting pictures of food and what I was doing. And it wasn't really until right at the beginning of COVID, March 2020, as lockdown started and I was initially traveling, doing dinners and events and cooking for people. And that all obviously had to stop. We were in quarantine. We were at home. And I didn't really know what to do or what was going to happen next. And so I just did what came naturally to me and what made me happy was cooking. And I just made things that I wanted to make. I made pasta, I made pizza, all sorts of different recipes. And we just record it and post it online, post the recipe, post things. And it just kind of snowballed from there, sharing those recipes with others, then other people would make it. They would repost it. They would cook along. They would do all these other things with it. And it really just took off 
from that sense where I was organically sharing and doing something I loved. And it just showed that power that food has to connect people with others. Seeing other people cook my food was the closest thing I got to cooking for other people during that whole time. And it was like this really awesome exchange of like gratification for me. People got recipes and got to cook as well. It gave them education and entertainment. And so it was like a win-win for everyone involved. And um, it's really just taken off exponentially from there. Yeah, I mean, it's really good. And it, it has evolved over over the course of time. So as a fellow content creator, do you still shoot and edit all of your own videos? Yes. Wow. I actually do. So I do about 90% of the shooting. I do 100% of the editing. My partner, Bella, is huge on the creative. And so everything creatively that you see is all her. A lot of like the cinematography and the way that the style that we've developed, the aesthetic of the page and everything, it's its a huge team effort. It's, it's not just entirely me. She's definitely very hands-on in the process. But yeah, it's a, it's a full-time job and probably more than just the two of us can handle. And so like we've slowly grown our little team to have a couple of other people and parts and components, but all of the shooting and editing is done by by me and, and her. Does she come from a creative background or is this something that she's also kind of learned on the fly? Creativity is definitely in her blood. It's just something I think that comes naturally to her having an eye for art. And so she's she's a dreamer. She's very ethereal in that sense, always thinking about, you know, beauty in the world and all of those things. And so I draw a huge part of my inspiration from the way she looks at the world. And so, yes, I mean, we make a really great team, the two of us. How did you guys meet? Uh, we both met in the restaurant industry. So I was back of house. She was front of house. We were both working at Quince, which is a restaurant in San Francisco. I think I was a sous chef at the time. She might have been like an expediter or captain in the restaurant and would come around and bring iced tea and espresso like right at that 430, right before service, come to my station. Oh, chef, here's your iced tea. Here's your espresso. And I was like, oh, here's a little bite of pasta. And we have like this cute little exchange <laughs> of kind of like flirting with food. It just, you know, grew from there. What's been your favorite video so far that you guys have collaborated on? There's one I could think of in particular that comes to mind. It's like a tortellini making video. I can't even think how far back it is. You'd have to scroll for a bit, but it's making tortellini with like a spinach and ricotta filling. So it's like a yellow dough with the green filling. And I just love the different angles we got and the way that it edits together and that kind of like natural flow. It just keeps you engaged and interested. And it kind of shows the pasta making process, which to me is like incredibly sensual and appealing and just like so tactile and loving that video, I think, encapsulates that whole thing. And it's just like beautiful, the colors and the way that it all kind of comes together. That's one of my favorite just, you know, pasta videos. It's not necessarily like one of those like viral food trends that, oh, here's baked feta and <laughs> cherry tomatoes. It's just genuine pasta making that looks, you know, real aesthetically pleasing and satisfying for the soul. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. They are beautiful videos and you guys should definitely be very proud of that. And I definitely want to talk about Quince as well. But let's go back to 2010. You wrapped up your degree at UC Davis, entered the food world, being a, a chef wasn't quite the career path that it is today. How did you make that decision to pursue the industry, you know, seriously, regardless of what others thought that you should do after graduation? It was definitely not the career path it is now. Chefs were not rock stars, not on television, not traveling around the country, not doing any of these things. I always grew up knowing I wanted to cook for people. I wanted to provide that love and hospitality. And just I got joy out of seeing people eat things that I made and taking care of others. 
And I think I got that from my mother very early on. So I knew this was something I wanted to do. She didn't want me to go to culinary school. She had said that, you know, maybe you need something to fall back on. So like you said, I went to UC Davis. I got a bachelor's degree. I had this like internal conflict of, hey, all of my friends are moving to San Francisco. They're all getting jobs in tech or sales or finance and business and doing all these things with a degree that you do from a very reputable school. And here I am. I just took out a bunch of student loans. I have this degree. I want to go work in restaurants. I need to know if this is the right choice. And there was a lot of self-doubt initially. But I think the thing with self-doubt is it's almost a sign that you're doing the right thing. Because there's that like natural part of your brain that maybe is telling you, hey, don't do this. But then you have to listen to that voice (laughs) as the sign that you're doing the right thing. Because that's just your ego, your self-doubt, whatever that you want to call that. Look at it from the, the inverse. Like if something is telling you this is wrong, it's probably the right thing. Otherwise, you'll never know. So I just dove into it, started working at the bottom in whatever restaurant I could get into. And work my way up from there. And it, it turned out very well for me. I'm very glad I, I stuck with it. I like that piece of advice. I'm definitely going to take that for myself. You mentioned you started you know, working your way up. You eventually landed at RN54 under Chef Michael Mina, rose through the ranks from line cook to sous chef in just six months. What do you remember about those formative experiences that really laid the foundation for your career? Working at RN74, it was a Michael Mina restaurant and he was there not day to day. There was an executive chef, a chef named Jason Berthold. And anyone out there that's listening to this that has ever worked for Jason Berthold or knows Jason Berthold probably shares the same sentiment that I do. He was the first chef, chef that I've ever worked for or known or met. And so he had a huge formative impact on the way that I approach food, that I, I approach leadership, that the way I approach running a kitchen and just all of these things. He was the type of chef that you didn't want to do well for because you were afraid of him. You wanted to do well because you wanted to make him proud. Hmm. Like he was that kind of loving, caring, stern, but nurturing figure that was just, he held himself to such a high standard. Him and Corey Lee helped open per se for Thomas Keller. He worked at the French Laundry. So he has like this really intense, fine dining Michelin star background working for Thomas Keller. And so he's here now with this really large scale restaurant doing a lot of covers, not exactly the French laundry, but he still held himself to such a high standard for no reason other than that was the standard that he held for himself. So it made you want to come into work every day, holding yourself to a higher standard, to wanting to not get mad at people because they did something wrong, but to actually teach them the right way to do something. So I learned so many things from him specifically that I still carry on through my entire career. A lot of those little tidbits uh, from there was was incredibly formative. After several years in that job, you, you kind of took a break. You, you traveled through Europe with your twin brothers who had just graduated college. So first of all, coolest big brother ever. You guys were all over Europe for eight weeks, UK, Spain, Italy, Germany. I guess, first of all, what was your favorite city? Yeah, that was quite the Euro trip. And it was like a different time too, because like you didn't have cell phone service <laughs> internationally. You could like connect to Wi-Fi when you're at a hostel. Yep. But as soon as you leave the hostel, you're disconnected. There was no like maps on Google Maps or on your phone. So like you had to kind of memorize or take photos of the ma- screenshots mm-hmm. of the map and kind of guess or where you were. Or print it out. <laughs> print it out. You, you know, like the, we at one point we had books well, that yeah. told us like where, maybe where we should eat or stay. <laughs> like imagine a book telling you like, hey, go here. A very, very different time. 
But uh, yeah, we did the whole Euro trip. It was about eight weeks all through backpacking. We never made it to Eastern Europe. We stayed mostly West. But I think my favorite city was Rome. I just loved the juxtaposition of old world and new world and all of these like architecture and buildings and stones and art that was just so easily immersed in part of the modern day appeal of the city. And I'd never seen anything like that. I mean, little known fact about me, I grew up in Las Vegas. And so growing up in Las Vegas, you see all of these like hotels and like fake versions of the Bellagio (laughs) and, you know, all of these things. And then you go there and you see them in real life and you're like, oh my God, like this is real. This is actually how they are. The hotels do a pretty good job of painting a picture of what it's like. But until you're there and you see it for, for real yourself, you just, you know, you don't realize. And so I definitely think Rome, I loved that that new and old that I've never seen anywhere else really in the world. Yeah, it is a very uh, memorable city for sure. Is there a meal that really stands out from that trip? There was two. There was like the Rome meal that we ate. We ate at this like deli called Roscioli. And anyone that like knows Rome knows like if you're there, you have to eat at Roscioli. But we got put like in the basement <laughs> in like this little basement area with like a couple of tables where they put all the people that speak English. So they had like the one server that spoke English. Incredible meal of all these classic Rome pastas. But I think another more formative meal for me since we're talking about you know my culinary career through things we ate at trois Gros. so like three michelin star restaurant is my first like fine dining michelin meal and we went for lunch which is less expensive still incredibly expensive i don't remember how much we paid for the three of us a ridiculous amount of euros we did the whole lunch and it's like a three-hour dining experience and you start in the garden and then you have a tour in the kitchen. They give you bites in the kitchen. Then they take you to your table. Then you get the whole tasting menu. Then they bring out the cheese cart. Then they bring out the dessert cart. And then they bring out like all these different things. It's just like I never experienced anything like that. I'd only heard about it. And this is pre-Instagram social media. So you don't even see these things on your phone. You just hear about them from friends and other people that are like, oh, I went to this restaurant in Europe and they had a cheese cart and you choose any cheese you want or this giant tower of desserts and you could take anything. And you're like, oh my God, that's so cool. Where now it's like, you hear that, you could look at it, you could see a million YouTube videos or a million Instagram videos on what that looks like. But at that time, it was the first time I'd seen it. I'd only ever heard about it. And so this was like mind blowing to me, but also unlock that like, okay, I'm done doing high volume in restaurants. I want to cook really fine dining. I want to know and care and have integrity behind every single plate that goes out of the kitchen, regardless of how many people we're cooking for, like every detail needs to matter. And so I think it was that meal where I knew when I got back to the city, I had to find a restaurant of that caliber. So how did that meal and those travels eventually land you at Quince in San Francisco? So I had got back. um, And at this point, I was a couple of years into the industry and had just kind of learned how it works, how you get a job in a kitchen, what staging was, how to get an interview, how to kind of like, you know, the application process. But I knew, you know, you just kind of go to the restaurant, you talk to the chef at the right time of the day and you try to get a job. And so I was staging around. I was trying all the different Michelin star restaurants, trying to find one that's the right fit. Because in the world of restaurants, you don't want to bounce around kitchen to kitchen. You know, you're going to be there for a while, number of years. And so you want to make sure you make the right choice. I was looking around for all the restaurants, talking to friends in the industry and Quince kept coming up as a place, hey, you know, stay away from there. It's very grueling. It's a very difficult kitchen. It's very demanding of everyone that works there. You probably won't like it. 
And to me, that was all the <laughs> words I needed to hear. Challenge. I was like, that sounds perfect. Challenge accepted. I think I spent a week staging there or so. I was like, this is where I want to work. And, you know, the rest was history. I used to live in San Francisco, so I've been to Quinn's. I've been to Catonia, the sister restaurant as well. Um, both definitely uh, experiences that people should enjoy and and savor. You eventually became the manager of the handmade pasta program there. Was pasta on your radar at the time at all? Or is this something you kind of fell in love with at Quinn's? Not at all. And it's like incredibly ironic. I grew up in an Italian-American household. We ate a lot of pasta growing up, so much so that I like did not like it. I despised it. I was that annoying kid that was like, mom, do we have to have something? Do we have to have pasta again? Can we have anything else? Please not pasta. I don't like pasta. Stop serving us pasta. And eventually, like, at one point, gosh, she was like, if you don't want pasta, you're just going to have to cook dinner for yourself. And I was like, ah, oh, magic words. Perfect. Like, <laughs> please, can I cook? And I don't know how old it was. I was like maybe like nine or 10. And that was the like my invitation into, oh, so I can make something. But again, I digress. I got the job at Quince not really knowing that Michael Tusk, the chef and owner, was known for his take on pasta. Very reputable uh, American chef doing incredibly intricate and authentic, traditional Italian pasta. And so I just wanted to work there because of the level of detail and precision and care that was going into all the food, where we were getting our ingredients from. And people were coming cooks from all around the world and all around the city, trying to get a job here to learn how to make pasta. <laughs> I was completely blinders on, did not realize that, was just focused on learning how to properly make a perfect Brunois shallot. Like I was not thinking about pasta. And it was just one of the days I was getting ready to leave. I was working morning prep. I was just like one of the commies or doing morning butchery and stock work and sauces and things like that. And I was getting ready to leave. I had already put in, you know, the full 12 hour day or whatever it was. And I was saying goodnight to all the chefs, going around shaking hands. And one of the pasta cooks, he, I don't remember what he did or, but he had already done some pretty egregious things leading up to this moment. And finally it was like the last straw. And the chef was like, look, he's not working here anymore. He's out. Here's his apron. You're in. Wow. And my heart like dropped. My stomach started doing backflips. Hey, here I am. I get to cook night, but also, oh my God, like how did I end up here? So one of the sous chefs ended up cooking with me all night long. I didn't like just get thrown on a station by myself. The food still had to come out the right way, but I just made that natural transition into the pasta station without really even trying and not seeking it out. It was almost like pasta chose me. I didn't choose pasta. And then lo and behold, through that process, when you work the pasta station in a restaurant like that, or any station for that matter, you're responsible for all of your mise en place, all of the ingredients, everything on your station for the menu that you're serving, you need to make sure you have. Sure, you have a prep team and sous chefs and people that help make sure you get those things. But at the end of the day, it's your responsibility. You can request from the AM pasta makers, I need 300 triangoli, I need 200 tortellini, I need 400 capoletti. Depending on the day, maybe they'll do 400 or maybe they'll do 350. <laughs> and so it's on you to make sure those extra 50 are there because there's no running out. People are coming to this restaurant from all over the world to have their once in a lifetime meal. And so you're not out of Capoletti because someone didn't make it that day. You make sure it gets made. So inevitably, I spent a lot of time coming in early, staying late, hanging out with the pasta team, learning how to make pasta to make sure all of my pasta is ready for my station. And so they didn't speak very good English. I didn't speak very good Spanish, but pasta became our communal language. 
And so through touching the dough, feeling things and just visually and pasta being that kind of medium that we shared, I was able to learn how to do it. I picked up some Spanish along the way, which definitely helped. It was this like full circle experience of getting to then make the everything that I was serving then later that night. I mean, it's clearly something that you have a a love and a passion for now. So was it love at first sight or was this a a slow burn for for your love of pasta? It was a love-hate relationship (laughs) for sure at first for a number of reasons. Initially, it was little things like having to have everything ready and there regardless. And so it took a lot. It was very demanding on my part because of how many items I had on the menu, how many things I was responsible for, how difficult it was to do a lot of these things that you only learn through repetition. Pasta can't really fake it. You could tell when they're not made well versus when they are made very well, the shapes, the cooking, everything about it. And so it was just a very steep learning curve for me, which I think was twofold. It was a steep learning goal, which is very frustrating, but at the same time, I am very demanding of myself and always hold myself to a very high standard of doing things. And so I think that pushed me to continue to want to get better and to continually improve. And all those things that I had learned up to that point were like, hey, you're not giving up on this. You need to learn how to do it the right way, the best way possible. And so I just spent a lot of time doing it, which then eventually inevitably I fell in love with it. But it was it was a long back and forth with <laughs> me and, and pasta. Did you make all of it by hand at Quinn's? Fato Amano. From my time spent there, I got a tattoo that says Fato Amano, specifically from the amount of pasta we made by hand. And there's a story that goes along with that as well. Chef Tusk came back from Italy, had learned about in Bologna, where they make all the tortellini by hand, a very classic, iconic shape, rolled out by hand, doughs made by hand, cut by hand, shaped by hand, everything by hand, no machines. Up to that point, we had used the dough mixer. We had used the dough sheeter for everything else. But he came back. He's like, tortellini, we're only going to make by hand. And so that just became this kind of chip on our shoulder that was like, we make our tortellini, everything from the dough to the filling to the whole process by hand. And so there was like a six or eight month period where that was my only dish on the menu was tortellini. And it was about 18 pieces per order. We did about 100 people per night. So what is that? 1,800 pieces of pasta I had to have done every single day. And that was the only thing I was responsible for. <laughs> so I would just bring the pasta board out to the dining room, put it on a couple of tables, roll out the big sfolias, the big sheets of pasta. And I would just learn how to do this whole process. It became incredibly therapeutic and meditative and cathartic. And it kind of removed me from the chaos and craziness that was often happening in the kitchen. And it was this kind of this very grounding moment for me. And I think it was during that time when it went from the heat to the love. <laughs> Because of how much time I just spent doing it. It's not like, we're not listening to music. You're literally sitting in silence with you, your thoughts, and the pasta. And so you learn to just settle into your work area, your your table, your pasta, tabletop, wherever you are, and just fall in love with the process or realize it's not for you. And I realized this this was for me. I could do this for hours and hours and hours and hours. And I did. And I do. <laughs> and, and during that time at Quinn's, uh, they rose from a one Michelin star to three. After being part of such a dramatic rise to this recognition, what do you think it is that separates you know, one star establishments from three star establishments? To understand the difference between one to three, you almost have to think about two in the middle as well. So one is... Generally, you like very good food. 
And it's really just focused on the food. Yes, service, of course, matters as well. But a lot of it is is the food, the service, um, but not necessarily maybe the restaurant itself, the plates you're eating off of, the decor, the where it is, and like none of that matters as much. As you get into the two stars, it's more about mm, the plateware, the dining room, the ingredients, are they luxurious, things like that. You kind of like brush into the two star area, then you get to three star and it's like every single plate is custom. The restaurant has its own farm. It's a destination for a number of reasons from the artwork in the room to the entire dining experience from the moment you show up on the property. It's this whole curated, very thoughtful and things you don't even realize that are planned for you are often planned in advance. You can kind of see that progression where as you move up in the Michelin star ranking, more and more of the details matter, where I think initially it's just about kind of the food and the service, and then it gets more and more granular. What do you think it was that, that propelled Quince to, to three? I honestly think it was the team that we had. At that time, it was a very dedicated team of cooks and chefs, and everyone that was there was was in it. And it was a very different time in the restaurant industry um, where you're working longer hours than you maybe would have wanted to. You're working more days than maybe you would have thought you could or should. But we all did it like we wanted to. It wasn't a forced thing by any means. We just all really wanted to be that good. And so it was this sense of community that brought us together. It's almost like the fellowship of the stars instead of the ring, you know, <laughs> where it was like, we are going to do this and we're all in this together. And we're all going through this crazy, grueling, demanding experience, um, but something we could all be incredibly proud of because of the food we're creating, everything that we're doing. And so I think it was just that that whole team that we had because we didn't have a lot of turnover. There was a pretty set core group of people through that. And I think that was like, about four years or so during that time. I know you also managed the market program there, you know, meeting with local farmers at the farmers markets in San Francisco, sourcing ingredients that would inspire that week's menu. What did you learn as you created and fostered relationships with these purveyors? It changed my entire culinary perspective in the best way possible that I would have never thought imaginable. I knew of farmers markets. I knew of them, but I'd never really understood why they were so talked about and sought after until I got put in charge of the market program. The way Chef Tusks work, he is from the school of Alice Waters, where farm to table is at the forefront. Um, he now has his own farm that supplies the restaurant. Uh, we did not then. We worked with all the local farmers and he would show up at the market as the farmers are still setting up. Sun hadn't come up yet, 5, 6 a.m., and would walk through and just buy all of everything. He would see that like, oh, they have the first of the strawberries or oh, the first of the cranberry beans. I'll take 300 pounds. I don't want any other restaurant to have them. We're going to tab them all and we're going to have them first. And so this like idea of why is this thing so sought after didn't click with me until I started going and building these relationships with the farmers. And you then learn that these people, as much as we're dedicating our life and our craft to cooking... These individuals are dedicating their lives and generations of lives, not just theirs, to do one thing and just grow carrots. You think you know what a carrot tastes like <laughs> until you taste a carrot from someone that has only grown carrots on the same piece of land for 75 years. 
And then you're like, I now understand why people may say they don't like carrots or <laughs> they just think carrots taste like carrots. They don't like that's not what a carrot tastes like. And the same can be said for any every other vegetable. Every farmer is so good at the one or two or three or four things that they do that sets them apart. I just became infatuated with this process. And it started off with me getting in trouble because I'd like be like, oh, you know, it's so much easier to just send an email or call in to the produce company. Hey, we need a couple pieces of celery for tomorrow. And then I would get, hey, why did you not go to the market and get celery? You ordered celery from the produce company. And I was like, oh, whatever, it's celery. But then you go have real celery <laughs> and you're like, oh, I get it. I finally get it now. And so that's something that has now like transformed the way that I cook, the way that I approach food. I fall in love with vegetables. I'm not by any means a vegetarian chef. But I very much like to treat vegetables like you would an expensive cut of meat. I'm much more comfortable cooking vegetables than proteins like fish or steak. They're just an endless number of, dare I say, possibilities <laughs> that you can do with a uh, with a vegetable. Yeah. And so, like, so many techniques and ways to utilize it from you know root to stem. And so, yeah, you can do that with with protein as well. But to me, it's just so much more technique and understanding of the ingredient goes into vegetables that I just, I absolutely love them. And I still cultivate and foster and cherish those relationships with the farmers in whatever city that I'm living in. It's like the first thing I have to do if I move to a new city. I was in LA for a while. I was like at the farmer's market three days a week, like getting to know these farmers just because I was like, okay, who has this? Who has that? Where can I find this? Oh, wow. You have, you have peas already? Like what time of year is it? Oh my God, it's so different here. And just kind of learning all of that because it, it means so much to me in my cooking. I know you carried a lot of those connections into your next chapter as executive sous chef at Lazy Bear. After the three Michelin star experience, I'm sure the stakes had to be pretty high for your next gig. What drew you to that opportunity? That was a very difficult decision because we had just gotten that third star. Lazy Bear, I think, had just gotten their first. They were maybe a year old or less than. They were maybe like nine months old as a brick and mortar restaurant. And they started as a pop-up dinner party, kind of breaking all of the rules of fine dining in the sense where they were cooking fine dining food, but serving it in a very laid back party, music, dinner party, communal dining, no tablecloths, everything against kind of what everyone thought Michelin star food had to be. I was deciding, is it time for next chapter? Should I say Quince? We just got the third star and everything kind of just fell into place where I had met David, who's the chef and owner at Lazy Bear. He had started it. Him and I were market buddies. So we'd always run each other at the farmer's market. His executive sous chef was leaving. I had known of the restaurant. I had seen them on Instagram. Just what they were doing looked so cool and fun and innovative and different and not so traditional like French technique or traditional Italian technique. Interesting combination of flavors, uh, a lot of preserves and fermentations and like just cool approach to cooking. He made me an offer I couldn't really refuse. My biggest concern was just like, what are my peers going to think of going from this really high-end, really reputable restaurant to this almost experimental restaurant at the time? But just like everything up to that point, all of those like self-doubts are usually a sign of like, maybe you're doing the right thing here, Joseph. And so we had made the the move over. And I say we because Bella came with me and we were like, at that point, we were, we were a team. So we've kind of bounced and grown and done everything from 
Quince to Lazy Bear when we moved to LA and have built now our business and brand and everything together. And so we made that move over to the Bear from Quince at the same time too. Let's talk about some of those current projects and businesses you, you speak of. You developed your own line of puffed pasta snacks called Tantos, which translates to so much yes. Where did the idea for a pasta snack come from? Yes, so much yes. Uh, very <laughs> excited about these. Tantos are a puff pasta snack. It's almost like a happy accident at some point where I was playing around with dried pasta and drying pasta. And at one point, I got them to where they almost look like chicharrones. And I was like, that's so bizarre. They look like a chicharron. I wonder what would happen if you fry this. And it just puffed up beautifully. And I was like, oh my God, I think I'm onto something. Initially, I was serving them to like VIPs, to friends. And when I started doing pop-up dinner parties on my own out of the restaurant, as almost this combination of my two favorite food groups, pasta and nachos. <laughs> and so I was doing like guanciale fat refried beans and like Parmigiana fonduta and this almost like cumin smoked paprika, like chip spice on them. Through those dinner parties, I met my now business partner for Tantos. He comes from the Shark Tank world of his own entrepreneurial business. And he approached me after one of the dinner parties, like, have you ever thought about bagging and selling these things? I was like, I thought about it, but I don't really know anything about that. I'm chef, not like a business entrepreneur in that sense. And he was like, well, let's, let's partner on this to figure it out. It's been two years, maybe almost three years now, developing, testing, branding, all of the whole process, which for anybody that doesn't know, it is, it is not an easy task to package anything, let alone a food product. But now we have, very exciting to announce, last month was the first release of Tantos, a puff pasta snack. We have marinara, tiramisu, cacio pepe, and pesto, all of your favorite Italian flavors. And for right now, we're doing direct-to-consumer only uh, while we still kind of get the next distribution mm -hmm. phases in. And so you can sign up for the email releases at eattantos.com. They're just really freaking good. Ever, like I haven't had any, thankfully, knock on wood, uh, negative feedback so far from anybody that's tried them. So we're really excited about them. And I, I really look forward to everyone getting to try them. Well, congratulations on, on the launch. You talk about this process of creating a packaged snack and it's taken a while. How, how involved have you been at each step of the way? I've been very, very involved. And so like, just like our business now, Tantos is also another business, but just a handful of people involved in it. And so we are very fortunate to find an awesome uh, design firm based out of the East Coast, Lacuna Designs. And so they helped us come up with the entire brand and identity for Tantos. We knew the name. We had come up with that on our own based on so much yes, kind of this like Tanto C was the name of my pop-up, which roughly translates in Italian to mean so much yes, which is like that feeling you get when you open a bag of Tantos or when you're about to eat all of the food on the table. And so just like we kind of love the idea that, I don't know, 20 years ago, no one knew what a Frito or a Dorito was. So in our mind, 20 years from now, everyone will know what a Tonto is, even though right now it's a new word to a lot of people. And so that was the idea behind the naming and the brand. But every step of the process from choosing the color to the packaging, to the font, to where things are on the bag, to how much to put on the bag, to all of those little things just are not only anxiety inducing because it's like, you know, I don't have a children, a child, but I imagine it's like naming a child. You can't really change <laughs> your mind necessarily once you do it. And so like you're making all these decisions on the way something looks and yeah, you can rebrand and change the packaging. But at this point, you're not doing that. You're choosing something that hopefully is going to last years. 
And so definitely stressful, but a lot of fun at the same time. I mean, it's creating in a new sense where I'm used to creating food, but this is packaging and branding and all sorts of other things. So it, it still kind of like plays into that same part of my brain that I know and love. Well, I'm super excited to try it. I know you also host virtual cooking live streams. You share your love of pasta and cooking. There's intro to handmade pasta, filled pasta 101, ricotta dumplings, potato gnocchi. People can kind of pick what sauce to finish with. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got started with that? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's something that kind of started around the same time COVID when we were all Mm -hmm. at home cooking. Everybody was looking for outlets to do other things. And so I started hosting monthly public live streams, cooking, cook-alongs, teaching recipes, making myself open and available to questions and Q&As and interacting with the whole audience that I had had and built. Because to me, like social media is one of those things that you should be social. And I really make myself available in that sense. I, I try my best to answer every comment, answer every DM, which is daunting. And I know a lot of other people on social media don't do. They just like kind of amass this following, look at it like a number, And then don't take the time to respond to anyone, which to me, that's like, they're there supporting you. Mm -hmm. You should look back and support all of these people as well. You're building, you're fostering, you're building a community. So I made this community around food of cooking classes and live streams. And they went from the public realm to then people wanting to do them privately, corporate teams wanting to do it for their party, for their team building experience, people's birthdays, anniversaries, special events. And so We're still doing that now. If people are out there interested, you want to host your own little pasta party, I'll teach you. I'll take care of everything. It's a lot of fun. You can find out more at my website at joesasso.com. Coming up in a bit, Joe reveals the strategy he used when he competed on and won Chopped. You're going to want to hear this, so stick around. Well, let's talk a little bit about Food Network as well. I know you were named a Food Network hot lister alongside some of our other favorite podcast guests. Of course, you landed on the Food Network map when you competed and won in season 28 of Chopped. Did your experience intense Michelin star kitchens prepare you for competition or is it a completely different ballgame? Yes, Food Network, crazy humbling and in, in like full circle experience for me as someone who grew up watching Food Network, learning how to cook the Food Network, not having gone to culinary school, uh, watching all of these old cooking shows just over and over and over, like learning techniques and seeing how people do things. And now having the opportunity to work with, be on and recognized by Food Network on something like The Hot List. Just so incredibly grateful and thankful that I've made it this far. And it's a huge like milestone for me personally that I always like to take a moment still now and like think back and like, holy crap, like this is really awesome that I've made it here when I used to watch Food Network. To speak to Chopped, a thousand percent working in the restaurant I was at at Quince prepared me for Chopped in the best way possible. There was a lot of unknowns every day when you work into the restaurant, especially when you're working with farmers and ingredients that may or may not show up on time or something that just comes too late in the day or the menu changes every single day and you have to be able to think on your feet, work quickly use ingredients that you're not used to seeing and make it happen no matter what. And so when you show up to the shop kitchen, you have every single tool there. The only variables are the ingredients in the bag or the basket. I had such a fun day and fun experience cooking unchopped. I thought it was like a walk in the park compared (laughs) to, you know, the average day cooking back at the restaurant. I loved it. I thought it was awesome. I'd grown up watching chopped. So I knew like all the nuances. I had a strategy going into it. 
What was the strategy? Well, I knew like if Scott Conant was a judge, don't serve him raw red onions. Yep. I mean, <laughs> fry tags a judge. She needs chocolate for dessert. Like so many little things. Like if Arone's a judge, you could use chili. He's going to want chili. But if you say chili, it has to be spicy. But then you like worry about making it too spicy for the other judges. <laughs> like so many little nuances. I had a very strong strategy for each round too, because I had watched the show so many times. I was in this belief that any four ingredients in the appetizer round could be made into some sort of fried fritter and dipping sauce. So regardless of what it was they give you, you could put it to the meat grinder and the food processor, add some cheese, add some egg, breadcrumb, form it into some sort of fritter and fry it. And everybody loves fried food as an appetizer. And as long as it's like cheesy and hot and crispy and seasoned, it's going to taste good. And just about whatever random nonsense they give you, that'll work for apps. Entree round, my strategy was just like, don't undercook anything. Don't overcook anything. Make an entree. Kind of like just get by. Don't shoot for the fences, but just make something tasty. Dessert, kind of shifting back to that anything can be school of thought. I believe anything in those baskets can be made into an ice cream, hmm. a caramel or brittle, and some sort of crumble or streusel. And then that is your kind of base there of your dessert to use the ingredients. And then you just need like a vehicle. Like I used crepes. I did my mom's crepe recipe. I've seen people do Dutch babies, which work really well, or like trifle sort of deals with the layers. Um, but in that sense, you kind of go in with that strategy. I don't think any ingredients that they give you can't be manipulated into that strategy. And, you know, this is me just playing the game and being a chef, but even I still watch Chopped every now and then. And I look at it and I'm like, oh, fritter. Ice cream, street salt, caramel, <laughs> done. That's so interesting. I'm going to think about that next time I watch Chopped. Because yeah, I know there's probably a lot of Chopped avid watchers yes. and viewers out there, longtime viewers. So next time, think about my strategy. And then you could go and impress your friends that might listen to this <laughs> podcast. You'd be like, oh, I just make a fritter out of this, turn it into yeah. sauce. Oh, da -da -da. And you'll sound like a pro. <laughs> By the way, it looks like you were you were on the other side of the table recently, judging Chopped with Manit and Jeffrey. Uh, what was that experience like? Oh my God, that was incredible. I mean, Eat and Jeffrey are like seasoned pros at this point too. So incredibly intimidating to sit down next to them that have been doing this for so long. And this is my first time now on the, on the judging side of Chopped, but so much less stressful than competing. And it just feels so good. So it it's almost been about 10 years since I competed the first time and won on the show. So now to be back, there's only a small handful of chefs I found out that have competed and gone out to judge. I think maybe like less than five or something. So very wow. kind of small circle to have that experience. And everyone there from the whole production team to Ted, to Jeffrey and Manit were so nice and warm and loving and welcoming and kind of like bringing me into the family as if I had been doing this forever. It was a lot of fun. Well, you're also on the latest season of Tournament of Champions, well known as the most difficult food competition on this podcast. Uh, without any spoilers, how did you feel when you found out about your first matchup? It's going to be a very, very exciting uh, season and show. I was so grateful when Guy called me up and asked me to come do it. I was just like blown away. I was like, oh, with other like, does that mean I'm a champion too? Because I'm here now. Like, that's this is awesome. Really, really great. When I found out that first seed and matchup, definitely very, very intimidating to find that out. And, you know, I was new to this Food Network competition circuit. How do you approach the randomizer and is it similar to how you approach a chopped basket? The great thing about the randomizer is like it's the great equalizer. Mm -hmm. So like even if you're going up against a number one seed or someone who's done this 30 times and this is your first, that randomizer kind of levels the playing field 
where you're both cooking with things you're not expecting to do or work used to working with. And so, yes, I had a strategy for the randomizer, not the same strategy as chopped, but a strategy in the sense where I knew a couple of base ingredients that I was really comfortable working with. Like maybe it was carrots or maybe it was sweet potatoes that I knew were in the pantry and I could manipulate in order to then kind of move and work with all the rest of the ingredients that were part of the randomizer. Who were you most excited to see competing this season on TOC? That's a good question. I mean, I really was happy to, to just be in that same group of everyone. It was so many like talented chefs and people I had watched on Food Network and I had watched compete. And a lot of people that I've competed against in the past on other cooking shows or other platforms. It was a really, really great group of chefs that we had there. It was really great to see Justin there. And, mm-hmm. you know, at, at that time, we were kind of playing our cards where, oh, we're not like super best friends. Like no one really <laughs> knows we have matching tattoos under our chef coats. And so because, you know, we're still in like competition mode, very fierce and serious. And so uh, it was really great to, to be in some of the best company uh, that you could be in. Well, we are looking forward to, to seeing you compete, whatever seed you might be, and definitely looking forward to seeing what's next for you. We're going to finish things off with a little rapid fire round, and then we have one final question for you here on Food Network Obsessed. Rapid fire questions, most underrated pasta? I'm going to go with ricotta ravioli and red sauce. I feel like it's one of the hardest combinations to find like done well on a menu anywhere. Everybody that does pasta usually tries to like do more. I mean, I'm just as guilty of it, but... Ricotta ravioli with red sauce. It was my favorite growing up, and I think it's underrated. Yeah, it's a classic. Key to successful focaccia. Time and temperature. The longer, the better, and not rush the process. Trust your proofing time. Time is everything. Favorite TikTok follow. I like watching when Salt Hank's videos come up because he's just like a home cook that makes these like really delicious sandwiches that are super craveable. And he like does them all ASMR and fast cuts and really like quick and sloppy and messy and like just, you know, like comfort food. I, li- I like a cook named Matt's videos. Uh, his are fun because he was a restaurant cook and chef that like kind of transitioned now into being a content creator. It's always great to see someone that kind of found their own path and making their own move like that. Yeah, I really, I really enjoy the two of them. Favorite Bay Area food spot? Restaurants got to be either like Rich Table or Ernest. Mm. Two very similar but different. Uh, daytime would probably be Bread Belly or Deli Board. Something you can't live without besides the obvious, like water, you know, food. Oh, I thought you were going <laughs> to say the obvious was pasta. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, with you, like with you. My mind the... didn't even go to water or oxygen. <laughs> I was like, oh, she must mean pasta. Um, no, it, for me, it would probably nachos. As much okay. as I love cooking and making pasta, nachos and Mexican food, tacos, all of those things are my favorite things to eat. So whether it be Mexican food or just specifically nachos, that, that's my answer. Couldn't live without that. Next travel destination. I want to get a trip to Toronto on the books as soon as Mm. the weather gets nice and it's safe to travel up there. And I know international travel is always difficult, but there's a lot of uh, really talented Italian chefs and pasta makers up there and just food in that city that I want to spend some time enjoying and hanging out with and seeing. Superpower you wish you had? Teleportation. Or, I mean, as Stan Lee would say, I think luck is a really good one too. How do you keep your mustache so pristine? There's a handful of products that go in there that are definitely involved in the process. Not even hair and makeup does the mustache. I always show up on set with the mustache done. What do you always pick up at the farmer's market? For me, it's usually like sweet. 
So whether whatever the time of year it is, if it's like wintertime, it's citrus. If it's summertime, it's stone fruit. If it's like springtime, maybe it's berries. Because like kind of going back to what I was saying, once you have that like real peach from the farmer's market, it's so hard to get or eat anything else. And it's like, I'm a big sweet guy and I could feel healthy eating these, even though they're loaded with sugar. It's fruit sugar. It's good. Uh, nature's desserts, right? Nature's desserts. Exactly. Advice you would give your younger self. Don't doubt yourself. You're on the right path. Everything's going to work out. All right. Well, this has been a blast. Um, I could talk about pasta with you forever, but I do have one last question. And that would be, what would be on your menu for your perfect food day? We asked this question to all of our guests. It is a completely different answer uh, depending on the person. So we want to hear what you're eating for breakfast, lunch, any snacks. If you want to throw in, you don't have to. Dinner, dessert. There are absolutely no rules. So you can time travel. You can have other chefs cook for you. Yeah. Whatever you want to do. Yeah. Breakfast, I'm like, I'm a sweets person at breakfast, never eggs. So I'm thinking some sort of like pastries, maybe like a great patisserie in France, or even just like if I'm in San Francisco, bread belly is always like, it's the spot for me. Just really, really good pastries. Lunch, I'm going to say, let's like teleport to Italy. Let's do the pizza, like tasting Mm. menu. That's like the where you could look down. I forget the name of the spot where you could look down through the the window in the dining room and see the pizza oven, and it's like a tasting menu of all pizzas and different pizzas. Oh wow! I'm that sounds like my dream. Them. Yeah, it's, I, I, <laughs> I want to say it's a Michelin star restaurant that does pizzas as a tasting menu. That's incredible. And then dinner, we're going to jump back and go to. We're going to go to Smith in Chicago. That's probably my favorite restaurant I've been to to date around the world. So if we go anywhere in the world, we're going to go to Smith. And then for dessert, you know, I would love like ice cream cookie sandwich with rainbow sprinkles. It doesn't matter where, like maybe like cake batter ice cream, strawberry shortcake cookie, white chocolate macadamia nut, almost like reminiscent of that like old good humor strawberry Mm -hmm. cookie bar, but like with warm cookies and ice cream and sandwich and sprinkles. That sounds delicious. Yeah. Doesn't that sound good? That does sound good. Wait, are you having, there's no, so there's no pasta on your, your perfect food day. If there's time, I would go swing by Missy in New York. Sure. And have some of her pasta because I really like the vegetables at Missy. Yeah. And like, they're kind of the unsung heroes of the menu. But yeah, if I'm, if I have time after pizza before dinner, we'll stop in New York, we'll get that. And then we'll head over to Chicago. But like I said, I mean, I love making and Cooking pasta, but it's not like at the top of my eating list, oddly enough. I think because I eat it every day, it's yeah. like not as special. It's so special. I, I'm not even going to say that. I take that back. <laughs> Strike it from the record. Pasta is special. I think that's the most you know interesting response, uh, that, that the pasta guy is not eating pasta on his perfect food right? day. But I'll, I'll meet know. you over. If you if you come, I'll, I'll meet you over uh, at Missy uh, for, for some Deal. pasta. It's, it's in the neighborhood. So. We won't even have to wait. I'll text Missy and we'll get right. Perfect. In. Perfect. Love it. Uh, well, this has been a blast. Thank you so much for taking the time and looking forward to all of your uh, projects and endeavors that we'll see the, the coming year. Oh, my God. Thank you so much for having me. This was so great. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. The magic is in the mustache. Great catching up with Joe today. I have a feeling this is just the beginning for him. You can catch Joe on the latest season of Tournament of Champions with new episodes airing Sundays at 8, 7 central on Food Network and streaming on Discovery+. Plus. 
Thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. Bye.